I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. With words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil. He's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello and welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus, and what I've been doing lately is working my way through a series that's all about the Batman storyline called Hush. Or, as I like to think of it, Batman's series finale. You see, kiddies, the way my canonical Batman starts it's in Batman Year One, and then goes right on through to Hush, which I consider to be not so much the end of Batman, but, well, as I said a second ago, his series finale, right? Basically, from 1987 to around 2003, that's pretty much what I consider to be canonically my Batman. Now, I'm not saying that other eras of Batman suck or something like that. I'm not making that argument. Anybody who's listened to this show for any length of time knows better than that. But in terms of what I consider to be Batman, all right, my conceptualization of who this character is and also more or less his story, primarily it takes place from... 1987 beginning in Batman year one and then going right on through to Hush in 2003 right now that's what the experts call headcanon and like any headcanon it's not exactly perfect and we'll be getting into that at least a little bit when well as we make our way through this episode I don't want to give too much away right now but as we make our way through this episode, what I think you're going to see is that my headcanon, it has a little asterisk right beside it whenever I say 1987 to 2003. So just keep that in mind. Now, overall, I think it would be fair to say that I'm not exactly the world's biggest Jeff Loeb fan, right? There are times when I really enjoy Jeff Loeb's work, 
there are other times when I wonder how he continues getting work at all. So, I think maybe the most accurate and most fair way to put it would be that I've got a little bit of an, un, of an uneasy type of relationship with Jeff Loeb's work, right? Now, this isn't meant to be anything personal against Jeff Loeb himself, because the few interviews that I've ever seen or heard that include Jeff Loeb, the guy sounds cool as balls, all right? So certainly it's, no, it's nothing against him on any kind of personal level. But when we start thinking about the work, you know, the stuff that he gets paid to do, guys, some of it's really, really good, and some of it, well... Not so good. So, I don't know. Tough to, it's really tough to put into words. But overall, it would be fair to say that this storyline, with some reservations, I kind of enjoy it. And like I say, I think a big part of the reason that I enjoy it is the fact that I at least consider this to be the end of my Batman's story. Now, that's not to say that this is the end of Batman. Because obviously it's not. But in some, sometimes in a season finale, you know that the story goes on. We just don't see it. And that, I think, is how I sort of process Hush as Batman's series finale. It's not Batman's finale overall. It's just Batman's series finale. This is the end of what we see of, of his story, you know? So hopefully that all, that all makes sense. Now... As I've worked my way through this series, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is the fact that I actually enjoy Jim Lee's work, at least on Batman, a lot more than I originally thought. It's actually been a little bit of an eye-opener. I mean, I've called Jim Lee sort of the, the Michael Bay of comics. And you know what? There's a, there's a sense in which I think that's actually very much true. So that's good. But... He, I, I don't know, basically what I'm trying to do here is find a way to not say that he's underrated because he's one of the most popular artists that's working in comics today. So it seems a little strange to say that he's somehow underrated. So I don't, I don't want to say that. But I guess what I'm saying is I was surprised at how much I actually do enjoy his work, at least on, at least on Hush. You know, I, certainly before I even first read Hush, I would have said that the idea of me enjoying Jim Lee's work on any kind of Batman story, I, I just didn't really see how possible that was. But fucking, I, I guess it is possible because I really enjoy his work on Hush. To get down to business, though, last week I talked about Batman number 614 and number 615. So logically, that means that this week, I must be talking about Batman number 616 and Batman number 617, but that's not all I'm going to be talking about, but I'll come back to that a little bit later. For right now, I'm going to begin my discussion with Batman number 616. Cover date is August of 2003. On sale date is June 25th, 2003. Cover price is 225 Story title is The Assassins. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. 
Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Editor is Bob Shrek. Story synopsis for The Assassins is as follows. Batman rappels down the Batplane and boards the company jetliner LexCorp-1. Once inside, he kidnaps Talia Head and takes her back to Gotham. He tells her that Rachel Ghoul will not tolerate a threat to his daughter. Talia points out two flaws with his plan. She and Raish are not on speaking terms, and Batman would never trust Talia. Returning to Gotham, Batman leaves Talia in the care of Catwoman. The message is quickly received, as Batman soon finds, him, finds a scimitar sticking out from a computer terminal in the Batcave. Concerned, Batman hurries upstairs to check on Alfred. After seeing that Alfred's alright, Batman quickly deciphers the context of Raisha's message, but is confused to learn that he's being summoned to North Africa. Alfred theorizes that Raish may be lure, luring him, God, that's a hard word to say, luring him away from Gotham, but Batman has no choice. Later, Harvey Dent sneaks into the home of former police commissioner James Gordon. He tells Jim that Batman will need their help in resolving the current string of crimes. He also tells Gordon that the gun used to kill Tommy Elliot was Jim's old service pistol. Elsewhere, Batman arrives in, in Africa and meets with Raish. The two engage in a sword fight, and Batman surprises Raish by running him through. With Raish incapacitated, Batman begins questioning him. Raish is not responsible for the recent attacks on Batman. In fact, he wants Batman's opponent equally dead, for the person recently used and defiled one of the, Lazarus, one of the last Lazarus pits. Back in Gotham City, Lady Shiva breaks into Catwoman's penthouse by Raish's command to rescue Talia. She gets in a fight with Catwoman and easily takes her out. To her surprise, however, Talia turns the tables on her, smashing a chair across the back of Shiva's head. Batman returns to find Catwoman has been healed by Talia. Talia says that Catwoman would have died if she hadn't, if she hadn't returned, but decided to, to come back for Batman's sake. Talia kisses Batman and warns him that his mysterious opponent knows about his affection towards Catwoman and will use it against him. She asks Batman if Catwoman is worth the risk, and he silently answers to himself that yes, she is. To be continued. So, what did I think, you ask? Well, to start with the cover, if you're at all familiar with Batman lore, you know, just the general canon and myth of Batman, you're, you can kind of figure what's going on with this cover, you know, because basically what you're seeing is Batman surrounded by flames. He's, he's holding a scimitar while uh, another, uh, another hand closer to the camera, quote unquote, the camera is holding a, a scimitar itself. So you don't really need to see that it's Rachel Ghoul holding it to know that it is in fact Rachel Ghoul holding it, you know? So this again, kind of, hints at the fact what it is that's going to be happening in this story. So there is, I guess, a sort of literal component to the cover. And as I've said again and again and again throughout this series, the fact that a cover either does or it doesn't literally indicate what's going to be happening in, in the given issue, that's neither good nor is it bad. 
it's either true or it's not true. So anyway, to get into page one, basically what we're seeing here is, I guess the Jim Lee designed Batwing overtake LexCorp one so that Batman can make his sort of aerial kidnapping of, uh, of Talia head and get that going. And this is one of those, one of those times when, you know, as a Batman fan, you basically have to be willing to accept the fact that Batman, he can not only do all kinds of insane, crazy martial arts, he can not only do uh, this incredible detective work, and basically everything else that Batman can do, he also has the ability to repel out of a plane into another plane without getting himself killed, and affect a kidnapping that way. And... I don't know. I mean, I'm one of those people who thinks that, you know, even if what you're dealing with is the sort of omniscient and, I guess, all-knowing Batman who has a thousand different plans and a thousand different backup plans and a thousand different contingencies and all these sorts of things, there need to be at least a few things that Batman is just fucking not good at, you know? And... I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm I'm drawing a line in the sand here over something that just ultimately is a weird thing to draw a line over. I don't know, but eh, whatever. I mean, I just kind of have to. I kind of have to wonder: is is it really that that much harder for Batman to just break into Lex to to LexCorp headquarters and kidnap Talia that way? You know, so I don't know. Anyway, though, on pages two and three, what we see is once again, this is a sort of strange looking grid type of page layout. And it's basically got four panels on the page and the negative space between these four panels. It basically makes an a shape like a capital H as in hush. And so I sort of have to wonder, as I have all throughout this the series about Hush, is Jim Lee doing this on purpose? Is he using this H sort of grid panel layout on purpose? Or what? I, and I honestly don't know. But I, I've i tried to just mention this, you know, when it comes along and just raise awareness about it. I don't know. I just think it's sort of interesting, you know, because I've... I'm not super familiar with Jim Lee's work, but I don't recall seeing this in very many other Jim Lee comics. So it just sort of makes you wonder. Now, one of the kind of neat things that's that's going on with, uh, especially, I think, page three, that far right panel and this H-shaped grid page layout, is you see in the in the distant background the Gotham City skyline, and I'm kind of a big fan of Jim Lee's take on Gotham City. I think he did a really good job with it. And I just, I, I could look at, I guess, Jim Lee's Gotham skyline all day. I just think it's, a, it's really well done. You know, I like it. So from there, getting into the, the next pages, basically, Batman single-handedly dismantles Talia's entire security staff and takes them out what looks like relatively effortlessly. 
And once again, this is a sort of, I guess, an Iron Man point of view from inside of Batman's cowl, where he has what looks to be sort of like a targeting system. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, Batman's cowl, is it in fact a targeting system? I mean, does it show him, rather than like vulnerable spots on, say, like an airplane or a building or something like that, does it show him vulnerable spots on the human body for Batman to punch or kick or do something like that? Or or, or what, you know? It just kind of makes you wonder, because I kind of want to believe that the targeting system or what, whatever the fuck that we're seeing in here, this kind of graphical user interface that we're seeing inside of Batman's cowl, it serves some sort of functional purpose apart from the fact that it just looks cool. You know, and it does look cool, don't get me wrong, but I would want to believe that it, it's got more going on with it than just that. So it just makes you think, that's all I'm saying. So from there, Batman kidnaps Talia, and pretty much, I guess you could say the A-plot of this issue is now in full swing. So, basically, Batman and Talia, they have this they have this sort of moment where Talia asks, you know, why is it that you're doing this? And, you know, Batman's basic answer for that is... Ask your father. And... Talia's answer to that is that she and her father are no longer on speaking terms, and you'd think Batman would know that. Or at least Talia would think Batman would know that. And, you know, Batman basically points out that he that Ra's al Ghul is going to be protective of Talia no matter what. And so, at the bottom of that page, Batman says, basically this is what his internal monologue says, he says he's looking back at the time that Dick Grayson got kidnapped and his internal monologue says his kidnapper had uncovered my secret identity and challenged me to find and rescue Dick. It turned out to be a test staged by her father to see if I was a worthy suitor for Talia. That is how I first met Rachel Ghoul. Now guys, I said at the top of this episode and God knows I've said in, in episodes leading up to this point from a canonical standpoint, my Batman's history begins in 1987 and then concludes in 2003. But then I also said in this episode that there's an asterisk beside that, right? Well, here's your asterisk, Chief. Basically, like any headcanon, this idea that Batman's chronology begins in 1987 for the most part, and then also for the most part wraps up in 2003, it's imperfect, all right? Most headcanons tend to be imperfect, and certainly my Batman headcanon is no exception. So even though, for the most part, this character's story begins in 1987 for me, I have to recognize the fact that at least some Golden Age stories arguably are, in, are still in continuity, at least a few Silver Age stories arguably are still in continuity, and definitely some Bronze Age stories are are most assuredly still in continuity. You know, so like I say, it's it's not really perfect on the one hand, my head canon, but on the other hand, 
it works well enough. But I have to acknowledge that, yes, it's not strictly limited to 1987 to 2003. There are instances of plenty when I have to go outside of that in order to have a more thorough, complete, and comprehensive headcanon. And this is one of those occasions. Specifically, though, what we're talking about is Batman number 232, which is the first appearance of Ra's al Ghul. So even though that was published long before 1987, I, I still have to include that in my headcanon, and that's the point. So anyway, moving right along, <clears throat> we cut to the White House where we see President Luther being notified by Vice President Pete Ross that LexCorp One has been hijacked and a kidnapping has, has taken place. And Pete Ross knows it was Batman who did it. That's been confirmed. And so when Pete asks, does President Luther want to take action? President Luther says, yeah, not yet, no. So, curiouser and curiouser. So from there, it's about 3 a.m. when Batman returns to the Batcave, whereupon he finds a scimitar sticking out of one of his, uh, one of his computers in the Batcave which, of course, sends him into a panic. He scrambles upstairs looking for Alfred, and he finds Alfred safe and sound. Now, this is a Batman that we're supposed to believe has prepared for everything. He's got a thousand different plans, a thousand different backup plans, a thousand different contingencies, so on and so forth, right? This is a guy that it's just not easy to catch him off guard. So the downside to writing a story like that or at least writing a character like that, you know, characterizing Batman in this way, is you start asking yourself, why in the high holy fuck would Batman kidnap the daughter of one of the most powerful and dangerous terrorists in the entire world and leave his most, his most close and trusted associate, which is to say Alfred, Leave him, presumably, unprotected. And I don't have an answer to that, other than the fact that this is a Jeff Loeb story, so naturally stuff like that gets tossed out the fucking window. But at the same rate, I also sort of... <clears throat> I also somewhat overlook that, because, like I say, this is Batman's series finale. And so I'm willing to let a lot of things that I'd normally lambast into oblivion. I'm willing to let a lot of things slide. So excuse me while I get a sip off of my water here. Anyway, to get back into it, Alfred even points out at one point, he says, I'm certain that your musings were more rhetorical in nature, sir, but... For what it's worth, perhaps he wishes to draw you back there, meaning to Africa, back there with him, and in doing so, leave something or someone in Gotham City unprotected. And yeah, that's basically exactly what we're seeing here, you know? That's exactly what happens in this fucking story. So again, it kind of raises the question, if Batman is this all-knowing, all-planning, just masterful badass, how is it even possible 
that he wouldn't have at least considered this as a possibility. That Raish is trying to lure Batman away from Gotham City so that Raish can move in and either reclaim Talia or perhaps inflict harm upon one of Batman's own associates <clears throat> as retribution for the Talia kidnapping. How did this never fucking occur to Batman, you know? And again, I don't really have an answer for that, but again, Batman series finale, so I let a lot of shit slide. <clears throat> so, from there, we cut to a scene where... <clears throat> I don't know why my throat is so dry today, guys. Forgive me, let me get another sip off of my water here. Yeah, <clears throat> very good. All right, so from there, we get this we get this scene where Harvey Dent drops in on Jim Gordon, you know, in the middle of the night. Because if there's one thing that's definitely safe to do, it's dropping in on a former police commissioner in the dead of night, uninvited, unannounced, probably unwanted. <laughs> What's the worst that could possibly happen? Anyway, Batman series finale, so I let it slide. But I have to mention it, nevertheless. So, this is one of those times in the story where... Look, people call it suspension of disbelief, okay? And it's basically a writing technique whereby you can... You're already invested in... And you already believe in the impossible... And so because of that, you're more likely to just roll with it and accept the improbable. Now, guys, here's the thing. It's not my job as the reader to do that, okay? It's the writer's job to do that. He has to suspend my disbelief for me, all right? Alfred Hitchcock famously said that you can make audiences believe the impossible, which is to say an alien from the planet Krypton arrives on Earth. He just happens to look exactly the, the same way that humans do. And he flies around through the air. He has a cape. He uses heat vision, so on and so forth. It's completely fucking impossible. But for some reason, we can all believe in that. And so because of that, many of us are also able to believe that he can disguise himself perfectly, basically just using a pair of glasses. We can accept the impossible, which is an alien do-gooder. And so that makes us more likely to accept the improbable, which is that somebody can use glasses as a disguise. Okay? It's all in the presentation. And so this is the task of the writer. All right? It's the writer's job to present the story in such an, uh, an engaging and... I guess, gripping way that you overlook the plot holes, you overlook the things that just don't fucking make any sense, you overlook the things that are absolutely, positively, 100%, totally out of the question, right? That's the writer's job. It's not my job, right? And in this case, what Jeff Loeb is asking all of us to believe is that Harvey Dent was completely, totally, psychologically scarred as a result of his appear uh, uh, of his 
appearance being disfigured and then him becoming Two-Face. And then, which, you know, that's a pretty easy thing. You know, that's pretty consistent with Batman mythos, so no problem there. Then he's asking us to believe that Harvey Dent, as a, I guess, a distinct psychological entity, not only reemerged, but took control when Two-Face had his his plastic surgery and had his face repaired. Which, yeah, I mean, whatever. I guess I can I, I can roll with that. You're asking a bit much at this point, but yeah, I, I think I could I, I could probably roll with that. And then, and this is probably the most difficult part of all. And then, Jeff Loeb is asking us to believe not only did Two Face, as a distinct psychological entity just go away. Not only did Harvey Dent, as a distinct psychological entity, retake control, not only did Two-Face have his surgery to repair his face, but all of this fucking bullshit happened in total secret. Now you're starting to ask a little too much, Mr. Loeb. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe if it had at least been hinted somewhere earlier in the story or in issues leading up to this point that this is what was going on with Harvey Dent. Maybe if he was already shown to be Harvey Dent once uh, once again, even if Gordon doesn't trust him, he was still shown to be Harvey Dent prior to this moment. But it basically it's it's basically revealing a little bit too much. I mean, all of this stuff was happening in secret, and all of it is coming to light in this story, and it's just, it's too much too fast, you know? But the thing that really just fucking burns my balls, the thing I cannot believe, fucking cannot believe it, is when Harvey Dent says, I've had my license, meaning his his law license, I've had my license reinstated by the state. And Gordon says, that's impossible. And Dent replies to that, is it? And yeah, asshole, that's fucking impossible. Okay, there's no way the state bar in whatever state Gotham City is in, New Jersey, I guess, there's no way that the New Jersey state bar is going to allow someone like Harvey Dent to have a license. It's just fucking not going to happen. I could sooner believe that monkeys would fly out of Harvey Dent's ass than I can believe he'll ever have a license given to him ever again. Okay, it's just fucking bullshit. I mean, to my understanding, okay, and guys, I want I, I want to preface this by saying I am not a lawyer, but the majority of my professional life has been spent working either for or with lawyers. So my understanding is that once you're disbarred, that's it. Especially if you're disbarred and then you do everything that Two-Face did. Now, I guess that I could accept that Harvey's license was reinstated due to like uh, like the machinations of Hush or maybe the other guilty party in this story that's called Hush. Although how the hell that would even work, I have fucking no idea, you know, but... 
I guess the issue is that if Harvey's good and back on the side of law, why would he go along with an with a maneuver like this that I have to assume is patently fucking illegal? If Harvey Dent truly is on on the good side and if he's working with the bad guys to get his law license reinstated, well, he's not really I mean, he's all of a sudden not so good anymore, is he? If he's fraternizing with criminals, you know? So there's that. Now, another little bit of trivia here is, like I said a minute ago, the line, uh, or rather the lines of dialogue between Harvey and Gordon are as follows. Harvey says, I've had my license reinstated by the state, and... Right here in Batman number 616, Gordon's reply to that is, that's impossible. That's in the original issue. In the trade, however, Harvey's line is, I've had my license reinstated by the state. And then Gordon replies, that's not possible. And then instead of Dent saying, is it? Gordon says, is it? So in, so now the, the, the exchange is now different. Harvey Dent says, I've had my license reinstated by the state. And now Gordon says, that's not possible. Is it? And it's basically attempting to... It's, it's a little bit of a subtle change. And I'm sorry, it's still fucking bullshit. But I guess it's a little bit more... It's done in a little bit more of a sophisticated way that it doesn't immediately invite the responses. Yes. Yeah. It's fucking impossible. So it's also a little bit less of a stupid transition from Harvey, you know, Harvey basically saying that the Joker's innocent and all of that. It, it's basically trying to make all of this fucking retarded bullshit a little bit more palatable and also giving us a little bit of a, I guess a rational reason why Harvey Dent would bail the Joker out. But then again, I mean, what exactly is Harvey bailing the Joker out of? I mean, Arkham Asylum is an asylum. You know, it's not really a prison f from which you can be bailed. You know, it doesn't really work that way. Even if the Joker really is guilty of, ki or rather innocent, even if the Joker really is innocent of killing Tommy Elliot, number one, it still won't matter because he's guilty of a shit ton of other murders. So number two, he's obviously, he's been diagnosed as being insane. And so he fucking belongs in Arkham Asylum no matter what. It doesn't matter that he may or may not be truly innocent of killing Tommy Elliot. And we'll come back to that at some point in the, not too distant future. He still fucking belongs in Arkham Asylum, you know? So all around, all of this stuff just doesn't fucking make any sense, you know? And the other thing here is that Loeb is going for a little bit of misdirection. All right. It does need to be set or not at misdirection, I guess, but more like ambiguity right? Hush, as we've seen him in this story up to this point, we've seen him in this weird sort of like black turtleneck. And then he's wearing a brown trench coat and he's, and 
His face has been bandaged. Harvey, as we've seen him in this story, has been wearing a black turtleneck, a brown trench coat, and until the last issue, his face was bandaged. Now, you factor all of that stuff in with the fact that Harvey knows stuff that you would expect only the bad guy, only Hush to know, and it basically looks like Harvey is actually playing both sides against the middle. He's fucking with Batman on the one hand, but on the other side, he's also fucking with Gordon and saying, hey, Batman's in trouble, we need to save him, and fucking blah blah blah. So, I don't know. I mean... When we get to it, we'll get to it, but I'm going to have a little bit more to say about all of this. But before we move on, there's one more piece of dialogue that relates to future events. And basically it is, it's Harvey saying, the gun that killed Tommy Elliott, when it's found, it will be traced back to you. It's your service revolver, the one that you turned in when you retired. Gordon asks, how could you know a thing like that? Harvey Dent replies, it's all part of a game. Like it or not, we're two of the pieces. The question is, how much longer do you want to play? Dun dun dun! So, anyway, moving right along. Batman catches up with Raish in the desert, and they have their moment. They sword fight. And I've said, you know, over and over again... That if you think of Hush as part of the ongoing Batman narrative, to me, it just doesn't really work all that well as a story. You know, I'm sorry, it doesn't. You know, it just seems kind of hapless and random and what the fuck purpose is this thing really supposed to serve? But when I really started thinking about it, you know, rationally, what I realized is that Hush, people call it a little bit fan fictiony, you know? And honestly, I can't really argue with that too much. But when you think about it as sort of Batman's greatest hits, and then you you put it in the frame of Batman's series finale, and it's not exactly a clip show, but it's not not a clip show either, then All of this stuff that we've seen Batman do a thousand fucking times in the past, you know, beat the shit out of the Joker, have a fist fight with Superman, uh, uh, tongue wrestle uh, Catwoman, sword fight Ra'sha al Ghul, all of a sudden, it's almost like what the story is saying is, Batman, this is your life, you know? And it actually kind of works, you know, this whole idea of you know, Batman's greatest hits and this being Batman's series finale, it actually makes Hush as a story a lot better because it's actually Batman going out on some of his, you know, more famous, more popular, more high notes, you know, and it kind of riffs on a lot of popular stories, but it's not too overly derivative of them, you know? This idea of Harvey Dent running around in a trench coat with his face totally bandaged and his face... Uh, surgically uh, repaired. Well, that's got a lot of Dark Knight Returns resonance. You know, those of us who have, who who are familiar with Dark Knight Returns from way back, that's got a specific emotional heft to us, you know? And 
Indeed, I think that's kind of the artistic and creative effect that Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee are going for here. So that's kind of, that's one of many reasons why I kind of regard this as sort of Batman's greatest hits presented as Batman's series finale. Does that make sense? So anyway, moving right along here on the next page, we, we get another establishing shot of Gotham City and it looks all beat up and chewed up and decrepit and uh, just sort of decayed. You know, you see the police blimps floating around and a bunch of fog and haze and mist are covering parts of the city and it just looks fucking cool. I dig Jim Lee's version of Gotham City. You can love or not love I guess Jim Lee as a storyteller. But man, you can't knock him on technical stuff like buildings and cityscapes and skylines. And also, I would say, sort of mood and atmosphere, you know? Very well done. So, anyway. Basically, Catwoman is kind of shooting the shit a little bit with uh, Talia. And you get the idea that Talia, she's no idiot, you know? Uh, Catwoman says, I know you're awake. Cats can sense that sort of thing. Talia answers, I can smell him on you. Meaning Batman. I can smell him on you. Lovers can sense that sort of thing. You can never have him, you know. And from there, they just kind of have a little bit of this cat and mouse type of thing going on where it's basically two of Batman's girlfriends just kind of having a little bit of a pissing contest with one another. And it ends up getting interrupted by Lady Shiva crashing in through the skylight and basically kicking Catwoman's ass. Now, if there's anything that I can believe, it's that Lady Shiva rather easily could beat the shit out of Catwoman, you know? I could believe that maybe, like the very most... And even this, I mean, I'm not entirely sure about. But the very most that I'd be willing to consider here is Catwoman might be able to put up a fight, but she's going to lose the fight. Even if she gets one or two shots in, she's still going to lose the fight. And speaking of losing the fight, we cut to Batman's sword fight with Ra's al Ghul. That's still going on. Meanwhile, back in Gotham City... Catwoman is just getting the shit beaten out of her by Lady Shiva. Lady Shiva is basically fighting Catwoman with, in effect, one arm tied behind her back, but not really. And so she lands one really good shot on Catwoman, puts her down again. And so Talia, at this point, has to give color commentary, right? This is actually one of those things that I kind of fucking hate it when writers do. I mean, part of me kind of thinks that you know, you don't necessarily need to provide exposition for everything. I mean, you need to name the fact that, yes, this is Lady Shiva. That needs to be in the text somewhere. But otherwise, you know, people have Wikipedia. You know, you don't necessarily need to know who fucking Lady Shiva is, you know. But Talia nevertheless says, you cannot defeat her. She's a master assassin, perhaps the deadliest of my fathers. And you get the you get the impression from there. So Catwoman tells her, shut up. Now, before I move on, I kind of need to give Jim Lee or Jeff Loeb or somebody a little bit of credit here. 
Because if you look carefully, yeah, Talia's hands are tied behind her back in this chair. But you can also see that Talia is holding a shard of glass and she's clearly cutting away at her ropes. So what the fuck is going on? Anyway. Meanwhile, back in the desert, Batman runs Raish through with a scimitar and basically says, It's over, Raish. Now, tell me. And at that moment, a shit ton of League of Assassins, um, assassins appear out of nowhere and they've got what look to be automatic weapons trained on Batman basically to prevent him from inflicting any further harm on on Rachel Ghoul. So where the fuck they were in the middle of the sword fight, I have no idea. Now to give Jeff Loeb the benefit of the doubt, it's entirely possible that Raish gave his assassins orders to stand down at least into a, a, a until a certain point. So I don't know, but in any case, it comes out that Raish has been having problems with the same person that Batman's having problems with, and he actually somewhat talks in riddles. You know, he basically asks, "Who in your life would wish to come back from the dead?" But basically, it it becomes pretty clear that whoever this person is, Raish has been having problems with him as well, and it's a lot easier for Raish to let Batman deal with it than it is for Raish to deal with it himself. Meanwhile, back in Gotham City, where Batman has decided to return, but meanwhile, back in Gotham City, the fight against Talia isn't really... It's not really going any better now than it was earlier. And Lady Shiva... I don't know if I said Talia just a second ago. The fight against Lady Shiva, assuming I didn't say that a second ago, the fight against Lady Shiva isn't going much better now than it was before. But Lady Shiva says, ask yourself, Catwoman, is he, meaning Batman, is he paying you to keep Talia nearly what I'm being paid to steal her from you? Nope, I don't think so. I only allowed this fight to continue to test your mettle. Why Batman would trust you remains a mystery to me. But your death will keep me from wondering about it for two. And then she gets smashed over the head from behind by uh, Talia, who's worked herself free from um, her bindings, and basically says, now that Lady Shiva is unconscious, tell my father to stay out of my life, which makes you wonder how the hell Lady Shiva's supposed to relay that message, since... Odds are she probably didn't hear it. Anyway, so Lady Shiva and Catwoman are both down for the count, so Talia makes her escape, and then, or let me rephrase that, she doesn't actually make her escape, she at least leaves for a few seconds. Then she comes back, and it becomes clear that she's been providing some amount of medical care She's done something for Catwoman. And Batman asks, who's responsible for this? And Talia's answer for that is that in some ways, you are Batman. So Batman asks why she didn't just escape and leave. And Talia replies that she did. But Catwoman would have died. So she, meaning Talia, returned. And now she won't. 
meaning Catwoman won't die. The herbs that Talia used will restore her health and her face within just a few hours. So Batman questions why it is that Talia came back at all, and so she kisses him full on the lips and says, I told you recently there was something different about you. Now I know why. You care for her. Maybe even love her. Your mysterious opponent knows this and is going to use that against you. Is she worth it? And Batman believes that yes, she is. And that is basically the end of the issue. And, you know, through it all, I realize now I haven't actually really talked about these, like, shiny, leathery-looking pants that Talia's been wearing all through this issue. But, man, she's wearing some t shiny, tight, leathery pants all through this issue, and she looks fucking great in them. So, I think it just looks really cool when women do that. And that's about it, maybe as much as I need to say. <sighs> And that just about leads us into Batman number 617. Cover date is September 2003. On sale date is July 30th, 2003. Cover price is $225. Story title is The Grave. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Editor is Bob Shrek. Story synopsis for The Grave is as follows. Batman and Catwoman are in the Batcave going through all of the computer equipment. Batman realizes there was a double meaning behind Raish's placement of a sword inside of one of the computers and he needs to determine what message Raish was trying to send him. Suddenly... Robin drops down from the ceiling and criticizes Batman for letting her, meaning Catwoman, letting her in on his secret identity. Catwoman and Robin briefly clash, but Batman breaks up the fight. Frustrated, Catwoman borrows a bat cycle and speeds off into the night. Tim's behavior towards Catwoman was a staged act to determine whether Catwoman was truly worthy of Bruce's trust. Elsewhere, in the streets of Gotham, Catwoman encounters Huntress. The Huntress is acting very strangely, and the two of them get into a brawl. It soon becomes apparent that the Huntress is under the thrall of the Scarecrow's fear toxin. Batman arrives on the scene and fights Scarecrow. Their fight takes him to a small private cemetery. Batman beats the shit out of the Scarecrow and demands to know who's been manipulating so many of Gotham City's criminal masterminds. Suddenly... A batarang flies from out of nowhere, nicking the scarecrow's face. Batman wheels around and sees the man whose face is covered in bandages standing before him. He's captured Robin and currently holds him unconscious by the scruff of the neck. He removes the bandages from his face, revealing himself to be Jason Todd, who's supposed to be dead. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, once again, we've got a relatively, or not, actually, there's nothing relatively literal about this cover. This cover. There's a symbolic truth to it, but not a lot of literal truth. And as I've said a thousand fucking times now, that's not good, it's not bad, it's just fucking true. So, the issue starts with 
Batman and Catwoman basically hanging around the Batcave while Batman fixes up one of the computer panels inside the Batcave. And he's not exactly giving straight answers to Catwoman's questions, you know? He's basically speaking a little bit in riddles because something, something Batman. So Batman, though, goes on to say, you know, that there's a possibility that everything that's happened in these past couple of months, including Poison Ivy's taking control of you, Killer Croc's subsequent attack, the fights with Superman, Harley Quinn, the Joker, Tommy Elliot's death. Basically, this is a nice little chance to catch new readers up on what's been going on in this story. See what he did there? There's a possibility that all this stuff has been orchestrated and controlled by some as yet unknown criminal mastermind. And it comes out that, you know, one of the one of the things that's truly changed since all of this craziness has begun is the fact that Batman and Catwoman are now a couple. So that kind of gives you entree into Batman's point of view here somewhat in terms of why it is that he would have Robin stage a conflict with the with uh, Catwoman in the Batcave. And basically what he's trying to do is figure out whether or not Catwoman is in on all of this or not. And here once again on this page, this is uh, pages two and three, which seems to be a little bit of a stylistic flourish in this storyline. We're seeing once again this grid layout of four panels that has basically the shape of an ush, not an, sorry, not the shape of hush, the shape of an H, which could stand for hush, in the negative space created by these four panels. And you know what? I'm actually going to just stop wondering if this is intentional on Jim Lee's part. And I'm going to say, yes, this is probably because not, not only does he keep using it, he keeps using it on pages two and three. You know, so what am I supposed to think? So anyway, basically what we get is a little bit of a battle between uh, Robin and Catwoman. And I kind of have to figure that when push comes to shove, if he wanted to, Tim could probably take Catwoman down, you know. Now, he doesn't necessarily want to win this fight. That's not the point of the fight. What he's trying to do is basically smoke out Catwoman's true agenda, assuming that there is a true agenda that they don't already know. So, as all of this is going on, though, Batman, he has a little bit of an internal monologue going on here. And he says that after Jason died, he swore that there'd never be another Robin. And yet, Tim Drake is Robin. So, what the fuck? And... Batman then goes on to say that Tim was something of an amateur detective. He'd studied Batman when he was a boy as a hobby. And Jason had died. I was alone, angry. Tim recognized that anger and decided to do something about it. He managed to accomplish what few others have ever been able to do. He deduced that Batman and Bruce Wayne were one and the same. Furthermore, that Dick Grayson had been the original Robin. And I'm going to just put Batman's little internal monologue here a little bit on pause and say, that is not exactly right. In the storyline, A Lonely Place of Dying, I think it would be more accurate to say that Tim was kind of a Robin fanboy, more than anything. 
And what he eventually realized is that Dick Grayson has to be Robin. And if Dick Grayson is Robin, it stands to reason that Bruce Wayne must be Batman. And that's, and there's some, some story stuff that leads into that, you know, how exactly Tim figured that all out. And I guess what I'm saying is that's, you know, what we're seeing here is a, that's not exactly the way that Tim did it. He figured out, because of, you know, for reasons of his own, Tim was more concerned about Robin in that moment. And what he, what he did was he kind of, he figured out who Batman's secret identity was based on process of elimination. You know, the, the real secret identity that he figured out was actually Robin. And he was a Batman and Robin fanboy in general, but you got the idea, or at least I got the idea in A Lonely Place of Dying, that Robin was really, he was really more fixated on the Robin of Batman and Robin, you know? And so, I don't know. I mean, it's not that big a deal that Jeff Loeb kind of glossed over the fine details here, but it does need to be said that, you know, that is in fact the way that things went down. So, anyway, to get back into Batman's internal monologue, he says, Tim clung to a theory that Batman needs a Robin. More than just for a legacy, but as a balance. And that part is actually very true. Batman thinks to himself, I'd taken both Dick and Jason when they had no place else to go. But Tim sought out the role. He wanted to be Robin. And as hard as I tried to convince him otherwise, Tim worked for it. And Batman goes on to, with his internal monologue, Batman goes on to say, Dick saw being Robin as a thrill. It's probably why he outgrew it. Jason saw Robin as being a game. It's probably what got him killed. But Tim? I have to hand it to the boy. He wants to be the world's greatest detective, and from what I've seen so far, he will be someday. Now, this is where headcanon starts kicking back in a little bit, guys. For my money, there is no Damian Wayne. Batman doesn't have a son. Tim Drake is Robin. Also, in terms of my headcanon, Batman is going to wake up some morning. I don't know when. Maybe sometime in his late 30s. Maybe sometime in his, in his 40s. But the day's going to come when Batman wakes up one morning and he realizes that his parents... What happened to his parents was a tragedy, but it's not his own fault. His parents loved him, and they never would have wanted revenge, anger, vengeance. They would never have wanted those values and those philosophies to consume Bruce's life. And when that happens, Bruce is going to find himself in a place where he psychologically accepts, not just deals with, but psychologically accepts that his parents are dead. It happened. It was a tragedy, but life goes on, and it's time for his life to go on. And so after that, he's going to retire. He's going to give up being Batman. He's going to move away from Gotham City, and he's probably going to get married, maybe to Selina Kyle, maybe to Talia, 
somebody. He's going to get married, move away from Gotham City, and try to find some kind of happiness and contentment in the the years that he has left of his life. Maybe he'll he'll move to Europe and spend his days just traveling around maybe the French countryside and just doing simple things. Or maybe he'll he'll move to some bumfuck middle of nowhere small town in Montana and just set up a, a new secret identity, not as Bruce Wayne, but as something else, you know, but whatever it is that he does, he's moving away from Gotham City and he's going into obscurity, you know? That is my personal biography for the latter portion of Batman's life. And when his time finally comes, maybe he's going to die from a heart attack or cancer, natural causes, just fucking whatever, you know? He's gonna. He's not gonna die in the heat of battle or anything like that. He's gonna die happy, or relatively happy, relatively content. And that's the end of Batman, as I see it. You know. And when that happens, you know, when Bruce Wayne retires from being Batman, when he finally gives it up, guys, it's not gonna be Dick Grayson who takes over. It's just not. You know. Becoming Nightwing meant so fucking much to Dick. You know, it meant everything to him that he could be something other, not than, not just Robin, not just that he could be something other than Robin, but he can be something other than Batman. He can be not Batman, you know? To me, that is the real victory in Dick Grayson's life. He's got that he reached a point when he realized I don't have to be Robin forever. And I don't have to be Batman either. You know, now I can buy that, you know, Dick would as a favor, he would fill in as Batman once in a while. But that's not, that's not the trajectory that, that Dick wants out of life. You know, being Batman is a very specific type of attitude and mindset, you know? And it's not so much that Dick Grayson doesn't have it, it's that Dick Grayson, in his inner core, fucking doesn't want it, all right? That's the point. Dick Grayson would view it as a fate worse than death if he had to per permanently take over as Batman because Bruce truly is permanently out of commission, you know? That would be a fate worse than death. As far as Dick is concerned, he doesn't want that. Like I say, he fill in a, a, as Batman as a favor, but it would be strictly temporary. You know, he doesn't want to be Robin. He doesn't want to be Batman. And you know what? I think there's even a limit to how much he even wants to be Nightwing. I think what he wants to be more than anything is Dick Grayson. You know, that's what that guy wants out of his life. You know, he's not going to be the guy to take over when Bruce retires. And since there is, since Batman doesn't have biological offspring to step up to the throne, the person most ideally placed to become Batman, since 
Batman doesn't have a son, and since Jason Todd is dead, is Tim Drake. Tim Drake wants this. He's not going to be the same type of angry, vengeful Batman, the, 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 the driven, obsessive Batman. He's going to be a lot more evenly balanced, but he's still going to be truly Batman. That's where Tim Drake is going to go. He's going to do what Wally West did. He's going to take over as the hero for whom he was a sidekick at one point. You know, that's Tim Drake's destiny. Dick never wanted that. Jason was unworthy of that. Tim deserves it, you know? He he loves being Robin, but the day's going to come when he's going to love being Batman. He's going to love the legacy of it. You know, he loves the legacy of Robin, and he's going to love the legacy of Batman that much more. You know, this is what Tim wants from his life, you know? And that's just, I don't know, that's just the headcanon. That's the, the imaginary biography that I have for all of these characters. Tim Drake's going to grow up, and when Bruce's time comes, he's going to retire. And Tim is going to take over from there. You know, that's just how I see all of this stuff playing out, you know, and I like the idea of Batman. Let me let me be careful how I say this. I like the concept of Batman as a legacy character. Now, to be fair, I don't really care to read any other Batman besides Bruce Wayne, but I like the idea of Bruce Wayne creating a legend, creating a symbol so potent, so powerful, so awe-inspiring, so fearsome, that it will survive into eternity, you know? I dig that. That that plays for me, you know? So, anyway. So how's that for a nice little tangent, huh? Anyway, so Batman and Catwoman, sorry, Robin and Catwoman have their little fight here. Batman breaks it up, and he has that monologue that inspired this little diatribe I just went off on. And Catwoman basically loses her shit over this. The fact that, you know, she got jumped for absolutely no reason. And so... Catwoman hops on one of the bat cycles and basically heads out. And I gotta tell you... You know, there's something about this bat cycle. It just looks kind of toy-like. And it could be that I had a toy kind of sort of like this when I was a kid. It was, in fact, a bat, a, a bat cycle. It didn't look exactly like this. But it looked kind of, sort of, in a way, maybe, kind of like this, you know? And it just, I don't know. There's something about it that just looks kind of toy-like. And I don't mean that as a compliment either. So, anyway, so, whatever happens, happens. Catwoman is zipping through the streets of Gotham City at 127 miles an hour, by the way, and you talk about moving. I mean, she's hauling balls, and comes across the Huntress, and, you know, the Huntress is one of those characters that I kind of wish more had been done with her in Batman comics in general, but also specifically this storyline in particular, I dig the Huntress. I'm 
I'll be the first to admit that it kind of works best, at least for me, on a personal level, that the Huntress is the daughter of Bruce and Selina, as she was in, in Earth 2 pre-Crisis, right? I dig that concept. But I also like the Huntress in the post-Crisis era, where she was even more brutal than Batman. She was just as driven and obsessive as he is, but she was even more brutal than he is. And she is the gold standard of not to be fucked with, you know, especially in Gotham City. She's a serious major league ass kicker. You fuck around with a huntress too much, she'll fucking break you, you know. And I just like that. I, I like that take on the character, you know, that on the one hand, Batman doesn't entirely approve of the huntress, but, uh, you know, on some level, but on another level, he knows there's really not anything he can do to stop her, you know? So, all around, all of this, just, it plays for me. I fucking love the Huntress. She's just badass supreme, and at least in my opinion. And I also like her motorcycle, you know? It's got that sort of, it's got that kind of cross symbol on it, like a Christian cross. It looks sort of like that. But is that a cross, or is that a sword? And if it's a sword, is that maybe suggestive of how much more brutal the Huntress is than Batman is? I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of like symbols like that that are kind of a little bit more open to interpretation. And this is not to speak of the fact that, you know, Helena Bertinelli is... She's not Catholic just for the sake of it. She truly is Catholic, you know? Now, how the hell you reconcile being a Catholic with some of the stuff that the Huntress has done, I have no idea. But then again, I guess the logical re uh, retort for that is, well, maybe she's not especially good at being a Catholic, because God knows I'm not especially good at being a Catholic. So anyway, all around, I just fucking dig the Huntress. She's a great supporting character in these stories. I just fucking love her. She's awesome. Anyway, so from there... The Huntress and Catwoman uh, get into it a little bit. Cat, uh, not Catwoman. The Huntress actually pulls a gun on Catwoman because, again, she's not exactly Batman, guys. She doesn't play by the same rules. She fires off a few shots, and what we see in short order is basically it's each of these panels they have different dialogue but we're seeing basically duplicates of the same panel where we see the huntress fighting catwoman in one set of panels and then we see the huntress fighting the huntress in the other set of panels and they match each other you know so what we're seeing is sort of the huntress in one of her older costumes like that, that you remember, do you guys remember that, that outfit that the Huntress wore in the nineties, that it was sort of like this full bodysuit and she had a kind of a, it was more like a Nightwing type of mask, like a domino mask on her face. It was more shaped like Nightwing. Whereas the Huntress normally at this time in, uh, you know, 2003 during this kind of era of her publication history, she had a little bit more of a of a of an outfit that put her body a little bit more on display showed a little bit more skin but it also had that pre-crisis earth 2 mask where it like 
it kind of gives her either sort of, depending on how you look at it, either bat ears or cat ears. And she's wearing that mask now. And so she's wearing those two different outfits. And I guess that's how we're supposed to tell them apart. I kind of like that. That's a neat little artistic effect. And as all of this is going on, what we see is that Batman is actually homed in on all of this. He's tracked the Huntress and Catwoman down. And he's watching them fight. And he's got some idea of what's going on here. He tells Robin to keep his distance because he needs a second pair of eyes to be objective about all of this. Which is a pretty good clue that Batman has some idea of where all of this is going. So that ends up not working out so well. Because Hush comes up from behind Robin and lays him out with one punch. And even calls him a pretender. You know? So, hmm. And Batman swoops into action. He tosses Catwoman a syringe and says, hey, stick this inside of uh, the Huntress because this is going to be, this is going to basically put her to sleep. And then you need to be ready to move because some serious shit is about to go down. And sure enough, some serious shit is going down because what we see is the Scarecrow zoom through the scene on the Huntress's uh, motorcycle. And he's basically singing that that nursery rhyme, that hush little baby nursery rhyme. You know, hush little baby, don't say a word. Mama's going to buy you a mockingbird. You know, that one. And it's kind of creepy when... And this is kind of a Jeff Loeb thing. I've noticed he tends to give a lot of these uh, second string villains, he tends to give them some sort of literary... Uh, mojo, I guess, with the Mad Hatter, obviously it's going to be Alice in Wonderland. I mean, come on, you know, but in this occasion, he's giving Scarecrow a nursery rhyme. And I swear to think that Jeff Loeb on other occasions has given Scarecrow other, other things, you know, other works of fiction or other nursery rhymes or what have you. I mean, it's this Hush Little Baby song today, but I, I swear to think it's been other stuff in the past. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my my memory is playing tricks on me here, but I swear to think that's the way it's gone down, at least in the past. So, anyway, moving on from there, we basically get this chase slash fight between Batman and the Scarecrow, and it's... Honestly, I mean, it's a little bit of a, it's not exactly the most pitched battle that Batman has ever had, but it's nevertheless interesting. It goes on long enough for Batman to at least demand answers of what the fuck has been going on in my life lately, at which point he starts getting some answers and he comes face to face with this shadowy figure with a bandaged face who's holding Robin hostage and he tears the bandages off his face saying when Batman asks just who the hell this guy is he answers the world's greatest detective and you still haven't figured it out life's just a game Batman And this time, you lose. And what we're seeing here is basically this character 
who kind of somewhat resembles Jason Todd, but he's got a gray streak in his hair. He's wearing a red domino mask. He's got this sort of black armored bodysuit and a giant R on his left breast. He's wearing the tatters of the bandages that were on his face and also a brown trench coat. And Batman's internal monologue says, Jason Todd became Robin after Dick Grayson. Hoping to harness the rage that had driven him throughout his life, I taught him how to fight. He knows all my secrets and has been dead for years. So, what the fuck? What the fuck is going on? And honestly, that actually relates to goings-on in the next issue, so I'm not going to get too into it here. But I will say that as cliffhangers go, the first time I read Hush, I actually found this to be a pretty effective little cliffhanger. And it actually works on a couple of levels is, you know, not just the fact that it's Jason Todd seemingly come back from the dead, although maybe there's that too, but he's also got Tim Drake uh, by the neck holding a blade to his throat and overall, this is just it's it's a really well done page in general. I mean, just on an artistic level, but it, it's got a, a tremendous emotional heft to it that, you know, the reader's asking himself, is this the guy? I mean, is this the one that's been causing all of this trouble lately? And if it was Jason Todd, I mean, apart from the fact that he's dead and he stayed dead, I mean, I'm not sure what stories you guys are all reading, but in my continuity, Jason Todd... He was murdered by the Joker, and he rotted away in the grave, and that's that's it, you know? So, but if he were somehow alive, if he were somehow back from the dead, yeah, he knows all of Bruce's secrets, and he is absolutely capable of doing all of the bullshit that we've seen in this story up to now, you know? So, it works, like I say, on a lot of levels. You know, the emotional content of Jason being possibly back from the dead, although... Spoilers, he's not. Jason Todd is not still alive. But there's also just the more, I guess, immediate peril of Robin being held hostage. So all in all, this is actually a pretty effective way to end this particular issue, you know? And this is, I mean, I must say, not just because of the fact that there's, you know, copious amounts of Catwoman and copious amounts of the Huntress in it. In this issue, this is just a really good issue. It's one of my favorites of all of Hush, to be perfectly honest with you about it. So, lots of fun. Now, what I talked about, obviously, uh, this is Batman number 616 and Batman number 617. Now, there was actually a wizard one-shot sort of interlude between those two issues. It takes place between those two issues, and it's... Honestly, it's not really that big a deal, and I didn't want to make too big a deal out of it, but I didn't want to completely ignore it either. So just to kind of, you know, bash through that real quick, because I am going a little bit long in this episode. I, I wanted it to be closer to an hour, and it doesn't look like it'll be an hour. It looks like it's going to be quite a bit longer than an hour. But just to kind of hash through all of this, this is basically the aftermath of Batman's battle with Ra's al Ghul from Batman number 616. He's getting patched up by Alfred. And Catwoman is just kind of crawling around. Very cat-like. And this is actually one of the things that I like about Jim Lee's take on, on Catwoman. Is that she does a lot of crawling and she does a lot of just kind of cat-like stuff. 
And this isn't just an, an affectation. On some weird fucked up level, Catwoman is sort of cat-like. If that makes sense. And so it makes sense, at least to me, that she's going to crawl around and do some kind of annoying cat stuff. She sticks her nose uh, into stuff that she shouldn't. And there's also a kind of a neat little moment here. And of course, they don't number these friggin' pages, but there's just a sort of a neat little moment here where she sees all of the scar tissue and whatnot on Batman's back. And this is sort of a callback to that uh, Brave and the Bold storyline, or not storyline, story. The autobiography of Bruce Wayne, where it's in it's implied on the panel that we don't we never actually see it, but Catwoman looks at Bruce's back, his bare back, and you get the idea that it is just scarred to fuck because of all of the the gunfights and knife fights and explosions and all the other stuff that Batman has survived throughout his career. That his his back is in pretty, pretty rough shape, you know, and it makes sense, you know, so anyway, so we see a little bit of his chest too, where we see scars given to him by Catwoman, these sort of cat scratch scars, and overall, I mean, it's a little bit of a moment to kind of look back on all of the, just the crazy, or not all of it, but some of the crazy shit that Batman has been through in his career, and I don't know. I mean, it just, it kind of puts it all in perspective, just how much punishment his body has really been subjected to over the years. So, um, there is actually kind of a neat little moment where we see, uh, when Batman got the scratches, those cat scratch scars on his, on his chest, we see a flashback to Batman wearing his old his old uh, uniform where he had the yellow oval on his chest. And then Catwoman is wearing her, her like her 1990s Jim Ballant costume, you know, that had the elbow length gloves and then the, the uh, thigh high boots and the tail and whatnot. And Catwoman says, now that you mention it, you can't imagine how difficult it was to get out of that old costume. Or maybe you can. And I got to tell you, I mean, it's it, that's actually part of the reason why I just really fucking dig this uh, this Darwin Cook Catwoman costume. It's really just a, a kind of a simple bodysuit. It zips up in the front. There's this giant oversized zipper ring on her neck. And she's got the... It's sort of like a hood. And then she's got the, you know, with the cat ears and whatnot. And then she's got the goggles that have their own cat ears going. And I just fucking dig this costume. If this had been Catwoman's outfit for the rest of her career, like for the rest of time, I'd be okay with that. I really dig this costume. It's a good little setup for her. So anyway, so moving right along, Bruce wanders off and... Alfred and Catwoman kind of have a moment with one another where Alfred says he has shared, Bruce has shared so much with you, you know, and I've, I've sown his flesh 
set his bones and removed more spent bullets from his body than I care to remember. There's one thing I wouldn't have the slightest clue how to mend. A broken heart. I hope you understand how truly extraordinary it is for him to share his secrets with you, including his bringing you here tonight. You began this evening asking what you could do to help. You're doing it, Miss Kyle, and please continue to do so. And, you know, or like or originally, I thought that, you know, if anything, Alfred would be a little bit dismissive of Catwoman, you know? And no, he's not. He's going to encourage this, you know, because I think on some level, Alfred would view Catwoman as sort of an entree for Bruce into a normal life. Now, she's not exactly the perfect segue, obviously, but a man marrying a woman is the normal thing to do. And Alfred would support that, I think, even if it's with somebody less than desire well not less than desirable but less than ideal like Catwoman Alfred at this point just wants Bruce to be safe and happy and I think this just very much rings true you know Alfred would say this you know whatever you're doing keep doing it you know and we've heard this now from Talia and other characters that Catwoman is not having no impact on Bat on Batman. She truly is making a difference, you know, a very positive one. And that again kind of feeds into my view of this story as Batman series finale, you know? So, anyway. And then from there, we get this sort of two-page sort of little miniature backup called Who He Is and How He Came to Be. And it's written from the standpoint of Alfred Pennyworth, and it shows basically in... Oh shit, let's see how many. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight panels, basically the origin of Batman, of which five are spent on the Wayne murders. You know, coming out of the Marco Zorro, running into Joe Chill, him shooting off his gun, Bruce... Uh, kneeling in their blood and then a close-up of his eyes as he's making all kinds of terrible promises to himself. He then trains and perfects his body to the peak of human perfection. He wonders how the fuck he's supposed to uh, accomplish his mission. And then in the final panel, we see Batman. And this is just very well done, very economical storytelling. And, you know, this isn't exactly what we saw in Batman v Superman, but we did see a very sort of economical uh, retelling of the Wayne murders and then general, not the general Batman origin like what we're seeing here, but we did see sort of a, a condensed version of all of that and it just, it plays for me. I really dig this. This is well done, you know, and people can bash on Jim Lee or they can bash on Jeff Loeb. God knows I bashed on Jeff Loeb, but I, this is just a really well done little two-page story here. I dig it. It's very powerful, very, very well done. So anyway, so that I think is basically it for me this week. Now, as to next week, what I'm going to be doing is wrapping up my sort of hush retrospective here with the last two issues of the storyline. That is to say, 
Batman number 618 and Batman number 619. But that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy.